Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ online at RadioNorthland.org. And yes, you can listen to Wrestling Memories archives right at RadioNorthland.org. If you can't listen to it live today, oh yeah, just type in Wrestling Memories or you can click on the website. You'll find the archives. We have got five full years, five plus years now of Wrestling Memories archives from the legends of yesterday and some of even the stars of today. I'm Glenn Braga, just happy to be along uh, for the ride today. And along with me down there and deep in the heart of Texas, my man is back for some co-hosting duties this week. When I told him the guest and who was going to be on, he, at the time of the recording, is a little bit uh, before his waking up and growling and getting up time. So I want to thank him for making his little sacrifice today. We're talking Mr. Mike McCurdy, the grizzled veteran himself. Hey, Mike, what's up? Are you ready for some more wrestling memories today? Oh, I'm always ready for some wrestling memories. And when you told me about today's guest, yeah. I'd have been up at 6 a.m. to talk to this guy. So, you know, this is one of the memories from my childhood growing up, you know, seeing him on TV. So I'm excited about this one. And you know what? You talk about childhood memories, man. Uh, my first memories of him uh, were in the American Wrestling Association. That's where I first started watching wrestling on my little television here uh, in Minnesota, northwest Minnesota. And this man, boy, he has done himself a, a whole lot of terrorizing in the pro wrestling business in his day. He's also done some very interesting stuff outside of the pro wrestling business, too, uh, in the world of bounty hunting. This guy can do it all, I think, man. And he can even write a darn book. His latest, uh, his book just came out here this month called Don't Call Me Fake, The Real Story of Dr. D. David Schultz. I want to welcome the man, the myth, the legend himself, the guy who put together this wonderful book about his life. We're talking about Dr. D. David Schultz. Welcome to Wrestling Memories. And I guess, sir, welcome back to Northwestern Minnesota. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a nice uh Nice area, very nice area, and it's good to be here. I'm glad people still want to talk about me, you know. And, uh, you know, I try to hide down here in Tennessee, not really hiding, but I'm, I guess you call it hid, uh, uh, about 100 acres in the middle of it with all kind of fences around and do not enter. <laughs> you got your own way, man. They come in anyway, and, uh, you know, you just have to deal with it, you know. So, well, you know what? It, it, up to you, and uh, I know Mike's enjoying that Texas weather. I love down Texas, man. Uh, you know, I, I just always have. Uh, I I used to drive over the road a lot, you know, and I'd get down there and oh, uh, free running until the police touch you. But you know, they were always pretty nice to me. Yeah, you, know, you know. But I love Texas, and uh, if I had to live somewhere besides here, probably be Texas and. Uh, Minnesota, when I got real old, I wouldn't mind living up there where I don't have to go out, just sit around and watch TV, you know? Hey, man, <laughs> we can extend you. The invite is always there. There's some pretty land up in this uh, part of the woods. Uh, let me let me talk about this. Uh, I got to talk. You, you finally put out the book in 2018, and now the Dr. D machine, the publicity machine, is up and running. You're doing podcasts. You're doing print interviews. My, oh, my, is it really just kind of uh, you know surprising, kind of gratifying that people still remember and they still want to hear your story uh, by way of your latest of this book called Don't Call Me Fake? Because, man, it, I mean, people haven't forgotten you, man. People that really do think a lot about you, and they're starting to show that with the attention that you are getting. Much do uh, deserve it, I, th- I think, here. Yes, they're doing, uh, it's doing fantastic. The book's doing fantastic, and uh, the, the, what you call it, the results of the book, people reading it. I've had so many people tell me, I, I can't put it down. I have to go back and I just can't put it down. And I said, well, my wife said the same thing. And she said, I don't understand why I can't put this book down. I've been married to you 48 years. I lived it with you and I still want to get back and see what's going to happen. And, uh, she's on her first, fourth time reading this book. And she said, every time she reads it, she picks up more facts because I guess she reads it so quick. She skips some of it. And she wants to go back, and then she, oh, my goodness, I don't remember reading this. You know? <laughs> but I guess that's good, though. I guess that's good. But uh, I haven't had any negative results from the book. I mean, it's, not, I'd say, 99.9% true. Everything's true. The 1% that wouldn't be true would be a, you know, but my wife picked one thing out. I think uh, John Cosper, he called it promotion promotions and she said that's not a promotions it's a promotion and i said oh my goodness you picked out an s in that whole book <laughs> well yeah that shows you read it 
but it has got facts that people uh, have never heard. It's got a lot of bounty hunting stories, and it's got a lot more facts about John Stossel that nobody's ever heard. Uh, uh, there's a lot more to it than everybody's, uh, you know, heard. Uh, there were several interviews done by John Strassel with me, and he didn't want to show any of those. He wanted to show the one where he got slapped. But I guess he, uh, you well, know, him and Vince both, I don't think he knew it was coming, but Vince knew it was coming, and I think John was just put in there the a scapegoat uh, for Vince to be able to put me out there and do that. And, you know, when you're working for any promoter through professional wrestling, you know, uh, well, anywhere, same thing. You work for somebody, they tell you to do something, you do it. Nowadays, it may be a little different in the workplace, but when I was brought up, hey, you did what the guy told you to do. And he told me to go out and blast him and tear his ass up, be Dr. D. That's what I did. And I had no idea who John Stossel was before I walked out that door and did an interview with him. Now... Another important thing about Stossel that had come up, you probably don't know, in his show, his TV show, he had a, I guess it's off the air now, but I think about a year ago, he come out and said he was doing something about crooks and crime and people suing people for no reason. And he said, you know, my injuries was somatic. And somebody asked him what's somatic. He said, well, that means when you get paid, you don't hurt no more. So uh, you just lied to the whole world, Stossel. You just told them in depositions that you were permanently injured. You just told them that you would never be able to work again. And now you're coming out here and telling them it's a big lie. You was faking it to get money. So that's what kind of guy John Stossel is. You know, I tried to get with him, go on his shows, and they always tell me, well, yeah, we'll do a show, but it's going to have to be, uh, I said, no, 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 no. It's got to be live, man. We can't do no uh tape show where you cut what I say and put it on the cutting room floor and nobody ever hears it. But anyway, uh, you know, I have all the depositions from all those lawsuits of Vince McMahon and John Stossel, Haraldo Rivera, different ones. But John Stossel says that Vince McMahon told him to come interview me. Well, Vince McMahon says he never told John Stossel to go anywhere. He told him to stay away from me and to stay away from the guys in the back. And John Stossel said no. So one on the line. So, uh, I mean, this is supposed to be perjury, I think, on a uh, deposition. It's like a court uh, documents or something. But uh, nobody ever does anything about that, though. But uh, I was not sued in this thing. A lot of people miss conception about me getting sued, losing a lot of money. No, I didn't get sued. Vince McMahon got sued. He made a settlement with John Stossel and never asked me anything. I never went to court, never charged or anything else. But after he paid John Stossel, he come back and tried to make me pay the money that John Stossel, he paid John Stossel. So that's where all this thing got out, all out of hand, you know, and I was trying to do a book back then, two books I've tried to do, and the word was that Vince McMahon stopped me from doing those books because I told things about him that he didn't want out there. So I finally decided that John Cosper, we got together and talked to him and seemed like a real nice fellow, and I told him I went honest, I went straightforward, and I don't want to talk about Vince McMahon because if you do, he's going to stop the release of this book. And John said, really? He's that strong? I said, John, if you're not a billionaire, don't mess with a billionaire in court because he will drag you down to the last dime. He's got so many lawyers hanging in there doing this, doing that. And then before the end, he's going to pay your lawyers off to drop you and get on his side. And uh, I've had people, oh, yeah, he wouldn't, he wouldn't do, oh, oh, my God, he does it every day. I mean, that's my opinion of the guy. He's the worst piece of crap I've ever known in my whole life, and that's my opinion of him. And, uh, you know, if I was out in the water and he was out there drowning, I would not throw him my life jacket. <laughs> now, yeah. I hate to say that, but I want to 
Well, I got, I got to ask you a, a question, or actually, I'm going to shift over because the title of your book, uh, of course, uh, it takes a takeoff of that incident. Don't call me fake. That made you infamous of what you uh, you talked about, it, and you've uh, quite done a good job in, in, in telling your side of the story in the book. But my guest, Mr. Michael McCurdy, this is one of his earlier pro wrestling memories. So I'm going to shift it over to Mike, so we can ask you some questions here, just to uh, you know give it through his eyes and, and, and interpret it, what he thought and kind of get some questions out of you and some answers here. Michael, I'm going to throw it to you. Uh, let's talk with Dr. D about uh, this uh, this incident. Yeah, let's talk about John Stossel a little bit. Um, yeah, um, I was 11, probably about 11 years old when that aired, and I remember a lot of my friends, we all got to stay up late that night because we knew who you know, Dr. D was. We saw him on WWF TV. We wanted to see him on 2020 because at that time, pro wrestling wasn't on the uh, major networks. You didn't see it on the news and things like that. So we wanted to see what was going to, what they were going to talk about when he hits Stossel and all that. That's the one thing we remember him. You slap him in the ear and that fake, that's an open hand slap. He hit the ground. But after reading your book and now after what you were just saying a minute ago, it seems more like, obviously it was more kind of a set of things. Like it sounds like Vince wanted this to happen. Because you said he recorded this, like, I think, like, three different interviews, but the one thing they air is you slapping Stossel. And it's almost like, was this, do you think this might have been kind of a play to get, you know, attention, maybe more ratings to get more out of the product? Because Vince was going for a sports entertainment thing by then and trying to get away from pro wrestling. This definitely fell into the, you know, entertainment aspect of it. So do you think maybe you were kind of a, part to just, you know, more promotion and kind of build the ratings to do that. Yes, I was definitely set up. Uh, and the first thing, let me correct you. I never touched John Stossel's ear. I never hit him in the ear. Never, ever. And everybody talks about it. And I've slowed the footage down on the tape. And I never touched his ear either time. But that's a good thing for everybody to say that they hear I cuffed him in the ear. No, 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 no. That didn't happen, and if you ever watch the tape real close, you'll notice that Fuji and the Iron Sheik is standing in the hallway, leaning up against the wall, and when this happened, they never moved. I mean, that shows you right there, they knew something was going to happen, because if they didn't know something was going to happen, they would have jumped out there and said, hey, wait a minute, you know, they would have moved and everything, but... Yes, I was definitely set up. And later on, I found out that I was set up and Vince wanted to get rid of me. And he couldn't get rid of me because I never missed a show, ever. I was never late, ever. I always did what I was told to do. And, you know, he couldn't fire me according to, you know, his bogus contract he said that I signed and all that, which the agreement was I was in. Uh, up at uh, Minneapolis with uh, Vern Gagne. And he called me and told me, quit today and come on over here and you'll never have to worry about going anywhere else. Uh, You can make $500,000 a year here, no problem, ever. And so I went over there with the hopes of doing that and followed Hogan after Hogan already left Vern Gagne. And all this was set up to get rid of me because Hogan was scared I was going to beat him. And we were great friends, by the way, me and Hogan, until this happened. And then Vince McMahon told him, don't go around Schultz, don't be with Schultz no more. It's either Schultz or me. And Hogan chose him. And, uh, I mean, I don't blame him for that. But, uh, you know, he never talked to me again. Prayed Vince would hear about it or whatever. So, yes, we were both set up. I don't think Stossel uh, knew that Vince didn't. And, and, you know, I didn't know anything about Stossel talking to all these other guys about wrestling, about him being in the ring and talking to different folks about wrestling, about uh, everything. When I went out there, I thought I was just doing an interview with a TV guy, and I had no no idea who he was. But, you know, and Vince told me to blast him, tear his ass up, and... You know, this was national TV. This wasn't local TV. This was seen all over the world. And that's the only thing, you know, when Vince sent me out there, he wanted me to do something to this guy. And when he said, blast him, stay in character, be Dr. D, that's what I did. And he told me I did a great job. And then he sent me off to Japan. 
and then come back, went to Egypt, and then come back, and he wanted me to sign a paper saying it was my idea doing all that. And I, oh, wait a minute. No, 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 no. I'm not going to do that. You told me to go out there and blast him, tear his ass up. That's what I did. Well, I didn't tell you to do that. You know that. It was your really You did that. All you were supposed to go. Uh, and, of course, I, you know, I told him, I know you're recording all this, and that's fine. You record what you want. I don't really care. But you can't fight these billionaires. They tear everything you say up. They make it sound like a lie. They make it sound like I was wrong. He was right. But, no, he was wrong. He was definitely wrong. And he should have never uh, put John Stossel through this or me through this. And But John Stossel's happy. He got $425,000. And Vince happy. He got rid of me. So life goes on. Now, <laughs> now in the book, and you said here too, you recorded, they video recorded like three different times. Um, what was some of the actual other footage that was recording? You know, I mean, I'm sure there was an interview along with this, not just the, you know, I think it's fake. What else was recorded that night that just we've never seen? Well, we had other interviews. Man, Stoss, he come out and tried to interview me, and finally he said, oh, I, I can't. Uh, I, can't I, I, I said, what's wrong with you, boy? Can't you talk? I mean, you know, it sounds like you're stuttering. You don't even know what to say. I don't know if he come out and didn't realize who I was until he tried to talk to me, and I scared him to death. He cut that interview and took a few second break, come back and started again. And I said, oh, you're going to try it again, huh, or something like that. I don't recall what it was, but, you know, everybody's around the TV cameras and all that, Madison Square Garden. And he quit again. He said, uh, yeah, I guess so. Well, he said, I'm going to try. I think I can take care of it. And he come out there and did this. Right there at the last, he said, well, I think you're fake, or I think it's fake now that I've heard it so many times. But at that time, I thought he said, I think you're fake. And when he did, I had to show him I wasn't a fake, you know. I mean, a man standing there calling somebody a fake. I'm anything but a fake. I'm an entertainer. I'm an exhibitionist. I'm whatever, but I'm not a fake. And I think he, he realized that after that, you know. And uh, once I slapped him, uh, he got up, and, you know, I always was taught when you knock a man down, he gets up, he's intending to get you getting up. So I wanted to make sure that he didn't get me. I wasn't worried about it, but, you know, I went ahead and slapped him again. Then he took off running. Uh, I thought he was on a foot race after that. I knew I couldn't catch him. He's moving too fast. <laughs> but, you know. Everybody watches this on TV and they watch these, uh, they see these tapes and they think what they see on TV is actually what happened. And there's a lot of things that happened that, uh, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know that Hogan was with him all day and Hogan told Vince that he was there to cause trouble. And, you know, uh, he called Hogan an asshole, which, you know, was okay too. But the Iron Sheep threatened to beat him up or something. So, Everything he did that night was resistance. You know, everybody was uh, against him. And I had no idea he'd been in the ring with other wrestlers before. They took him in the ring and tried to show him how wrestling, you know. And uh, then, you know, Eddie Mansfield went out with him and uh, uh, tried to expose the business with him. And he's, he told him, Eddie told him, do not talk to David Schultz. Do not tell David Schultz. He's not real, or he's not. He's the only real one around, because he will knock you out. And I'll be done. Here comes John Stossel strutting up there. And now I read this in the depositions later. You know, I didn't know this that night. I had no idea uh, that he would uh, go that far to say that. But you know, you never know. People do anything for money, I guess. Now I want to. Now add looking back on it all, we've gone through the. Sorry, Glenn. Just one real quick question. Sure. Um, looking back at the depositions and everything now, and you know, you've been able to flesh out the story more. What's your opinion on it now more? Now, do you know exactly what happened? How do you look back at it? Well, I look, I look back he was trying to, uh, make a name for himself and that actually slapped him. like that made him a, a bigger personality than he would have ever been. If he hadn't got slapped since he got slapped, it made him a big, 
icon in news or whatever. You know, they eat it up, and Barbara Walters out there doing her story about, oh, my God, oh, I heard he got, they beat you up and all that, you know. But anyway, uh, I think uh, if I, still, if I had to do it again, and I was working with Vince McMahon, he told me to go out and blast him, and he said what he did then, I'd, I'd knock him down. I mean, uh, you know, he's lucky that's all I did was slap him, you know. If I had a hit him, he probably would have never got up again, uh, you know, a little fellow like that. But I just wanted to show him that I wasn't fake, you know. He, uh, and Vince wanted him, uh, wanted to convince him to leave us alone, leave the wrestling story alone. You shouldn't be out here with this wrestling story. And, you know, he just about forgot the wrestling story after that. I mean, he did talk about it in this year, but he never tells anybody he went in the ring and went in the gym with wrestlers and they wrestled with him and showed him how to be a professional wrestler. And he was a college wrestler, I heard. Oh, that must have been a pretty sorry college. But anyway, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, in, in life, you find out later on, you know, uh, you know, you'll find out in the book when I start talking about all the bounty hunting stuff, people call me up and uh, just here about a month ago, I guess it was, a fellow called me up bail bond and said, David, I got a guy down here right in Alabama there. I'm I need you to go with me, please. I need you to go with me. I said, I don't do that no more, man. He said, well, I, please go with me. Just ride down there with me. He's a badass. I need to get him in. I got a large bond on him, you know. And I said, okay. So I met him down the road here. We went down there and got to the house. And he said, that's the house. That's where he lives right there, they said. And uh, I said, okay, you want me to go to the back door? Uh, oh, no, 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 no. I need you to go in the front. I said, where are you going? I'm going to the back. Uh, so I walked to the front door, knocked on the door. The boy comes to the door. He's standing there right in the door. I told him who I was, showed him my badge, grabbed him by the hair, pulled him down, handcuffed him, put him in the car, went back, looked for this guy. He better hide behind a tree somewhere. I mean, I mean, God didn't give me no trouble. I mean, it wasn't like I fought him to take him down. I just told him he's under arrest. I'm David Schultz, bail enforcement agent. You got to go with me. He just got down on his knees, fell on down, handcuffed him, took on, no problem. And this guy told me how bad he was. Yeah, right. You know, there ain't many bad people left out there. Uh, there, there was a bunch of them. I hadn't run up on them that. Uh, I hadn't really run up on a guy that I was scared of. Uh, I didn't. I don't mind facing anybody. Um, there has been people I refused to go pick up. Uh, for the FBI or somebody. Uh, but when you look at his rap sheet, he done killed about 10, 15 people. The last one killed five, left them in the house and burnt the house down. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of guy I don't, I ain't got time to mess with. I don't need to mess with him. And I told him, go get him yourself. I went, you know, and he's in another country too. He was down in uh, Jamaica area, you know. And, uh, you know, and they don't care about you. They just want to get them in and get a pat on the back from them, you know. And I don't get nothing about no pat on the back. Show me the money. And, uh, you know, that's what I did. I made money, made good money, and brought in. Never missed a person I was looking for. A lot of them I was looking for would get caught, you know, picked up by the police or something happened somewhere away from me. I had no uh, no influence on it. And then I, you know, I would quit looking for them because they'd already caught. But I picked up uh, thousands of them, and I picked up murderers, rapists, uh, bank robbers. Uh, I mean, I, I got them all, you know. And uh, it's a very exciting life, though. I love it. And uh, I mean, it was. I made a lot more money doing that than I did wrestling. I'll tell you that. And it was more exciting doing that it was wrestling, but I love wrestling too now until I got, uh, you got whatever you call it, stood up or whatever. And not one, not one wrestler came to my aid. Not one wrestler come out and said, Oh no, I heard that in the dressing room. I heard him telling that not one. So from that day forward, I quit getting along with wrestlers. I mean, you know, I still talk to them and all that a little more today than I ever have. But I just wasn't, I didn't know that the guys could care so much about a job that they would let a guy get railroaded like that and not come up 
in his defense, you know. But oh yeah, that's that's one activity that yeah, you know, the almighty dollar will buy you freedom from anything like that <laughs> most 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 oh. definitely and uh you know david i have to you know talk about you know you're the, you know at the time and you work you came up through the territories and you had a reputation for being very protective as is a lot of the guys during the kayfabe era and i think uh, a lot of that too should be uh, noted in the way you broke into the business as well and and who you had help you get into the business to put in that that uh, that mindset of protecting the business and and knowing how to work and knowing how to protect yourself uh, way back when, uh, I, I think, let's talk a little bit about getting in with, with Herb Welch and, and some of the lessons and, and some of your early days in pro wrestling, the things that you did pick up and kind of developed your base as who you became as a man and a pro wrestler. Well, you know, Herb Welch lived in Dysburg, Tennessee, and I lived in Jackson, Tennessee, and I had an auction settling route. Uh, you know, I was a certified welder, state of Tennessee, and I went by his house one day and I stopped and talked to him and said, uh, now, I wasn't a wrestling fan. I'd seen it on TV a few times, but I, I wouldn't run home to turn on the channel and watch it. And I seen these guys, and my uncle tried to wrestle, like, when I was 12, 13 years old. We'd go with him to the studio, but he never made it. He quit, and uh, I was too young to know anything about it, I guess. But anyway, I stopped and asked him if he would train me to be a professional wrestler. I heard that he was a you know, pretty good wrestler and all that. He said, yeah, boy, I'll train you. And... He said, $300. I said, okay. Uh, he said, meet me here Thursday, and we'll get started. So I went down and paid him $300, and that was a lot of money back then. Uh, it wasn't much today, but back then it was a lot of money. So Herb got me in the ring, and he started working out with me. He was 67 years old now, and I was about 24 or something like that. I forget what it was, but you're pretty close to that. He beat the hell out of me. He beat me up so bad, and, you know, I used to box, and I was a pretty tough guy, I thought it was, anyway. And Herb Welch would stretch me and, uh, about three hours, and he'd tell me, be here uh, next Monday, we'll go through it now, all this here, we'll keep going every two days, uh, you know, until you get it. And he did it again, and he beat me. I had bruises all over me. When I got home... My wife would have to come outside. I'd blow the horn, sit in my car, and she'd have to come outside, open the door, lift my legs out of the car, and help me into the house. And then I'd get in a hot tub of water and sit for about 15, 20 minutes, and then I'd get in a cold tub of water, and I'd go to bed, and I'd get up about 4 o'clock in the morning and start my day job. And I didn't, I told her, I said, I don't know. I don't know about, I, I just, you know, uh, he's about to kill me over here. And then about the second week, I guess my body started getting used to all these bruises and all these stretches where it stretches your muscles so far. And what he was trying to do is not hurt me, but hurt me enough to let me know that if I thought I wanted to be a pro wrestler, that I was going to be in a bad situation if I couldn't take care of myself. And if I couldn't take a little pain, no sense of me being in there. And that's the way they did back then. They tried to discourage you from getting into wrestling because they didn't want somebody to come in there and, you know, quit a month and start telling everybody, oh, no, that's a bunch of bull. Because they don't want to look bad with their friends. They don't want to go home and say, oh, this old man be telling me too rough for me. They want to go home and say, well, you know, that, that ain't for me. I thought it was a real thing. It's a bunch of bull and all that, you know. And they tried to discourage people from that. And after three months of working with Herb Welch and different wrestlers that would come in from Memphis and Nashville and work out with me, they told Herb, hey, you got to do something to this guy, man, because he's going to hurt us or cause us to hurt ourselves because he is not smart to the business. You've never smartened him up a bit. And Herb, all he showed me was shooting moves, how to hook people, how to hurt them, how to, uh, you know, separate a guy's shoulder, how to dislocate his knee accidentally, where it looked like an accident move, or hook them where they couldn't move. They starved if you didn't let them go. Finally, he told me, he said, boy, you ain't going to never make a dime like that. He said, I tell you, it's, uh, you know, but I tell you what I'm going to do. We're going to, you forget everything I showed you. Don't forget it. Stick it back in the back of your head. And don't do it no more around here, and I'm going to show you how to be a pro wrestler. 
So he started that night showing me how to take it. He still do the basically basic moves, but don't try to break the hand, the guy's arm where he can't make a living for his family. It's okay to take him down when he don't want to go down, but don't just keep hurting him so he can't work no more. We can't wrestle. We can't go and make a living for his family because we're not trying to do that. And, you know, he eased me into it like, okay, that's a lot, that's a lot easier. <laughs> anyway, the guys kept working with me, and then he got me booked in Malden, Missouri. as a second story of a two-story furniture building in a little small town in Missouri, probably a big town now, Malden. Henry Rogers was a promoter, and he, he run that town every week, and they would pack to the Raptors every week. I'd have to wrestle about six to eight times a night. Every one night I went up there, I'd go out as a single. Then I'd go back in the tag. Then I'd go back to the mask man. Then I'd go back in a tag mask man. Then I'd go back in a six-man tag. I mean, you know, it's like <laughs> all those matches. And I'd leave Jackson with about $20 in my pocket, full tank of gas. And when I got back, I'd have $10 in my pocket and the empty tank of gas. <laughs> That's after getting paid, you know. So you have to pay your dues, and, you know, it was all, Herb knew all that. And he told me, boy, you got to get experience somewhere. You got to get used to these people out there, these fans. They're the ones you got to worry about. You ain't got to worry about that guy across the ring from you. You got to worry about the fans. They're the ones going to hurt you. They're the ones going to cut you. They're the ones going to shoot you or tear your car up or burn your car down or uh, try to get your family or whatever. And he said, just... Remember that you need to learn all that. So within six months, I was in Memphis, Tennessee, working main event with Jerry Lawler, uh, which is another experience. <laughs> yeah, talk about but, moving from Malden uh, to to Memphis. I mean, this was just the gradual progression. Now, at the time, uh, you were also as you were cutting your teeth, you were uh, kind of trying to find your your wrestling identity as a moniker as you were learning the skills, and it uh, kind of started around that time when you became and found uh, your doctorate, as they say. Uh, let's talk about a little bit about the Menfo territory and the evolution of David Schultz, wrestler who was cutting his teeth trying to find his identity. You had a mask. You were a hippie even for a while. I don't understand how you were ever considered a hippie, but anyway, let's talk Memphis. Let's talk about the evolution of Dr. D. Well, you know, Jerry, 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 Nick Goulas, they was, he run Memphis at that time. Uh, Nick Goulas did out of Nashville. He run all the Tennessee territory area. And that's when I went in there for Nick Goulas. I'd work Memphis, Nashville, Birmingham, all that area. And I'd work with people like Tex McKenzie, uh, Tex Riley, uh, you know, these guys are old timers and, you know, and they was great. I mean, they go out there and say, Hey kid, just come in there and do what you got to do and, uh, just have a good time. And, uh, they knew enough to control you and control the match. All you had to do is listen to them, uh, you know, without going out there and saying, Hey, I'm going to beat you. Ain't no way you're going to beat them. They annihilate you if they wanted to, but you learn how to cooperate with the older guys. The older guys have been wrestling 20, 30 years, you know, they didn't wrestle 20, 30 years and not know nothing. So you listen to them, you watch them and you watch their actions, how the people react to different things. And in Memphis, you know, I've worked with a lot of these guys and with Lawler as tag team partner, Dutch Mantel, tag team partner, Dennis Condry. You know, we developed our own style you need to know what the people are thinking or what you think they're thinking, but you also need to back up what you say. If you're going to go out there and run your mouth, you better be ready to fight because there's going to be somebody in that crowd that wants to try you. It's going to be somebody and not necessarily tomorrow at work. They wouldn't want to try you, but that night when they're in that wrestling arena and hating you so bad, they want to try to get you. They think they do anyway. And then when they do get to you, you end up knocking them out and, uh, one punch and yeah, you know, they feel so bad because they didn't get to fight. They just, you know, got knocked out, <laughs> but you learn a lot watching these guys. And even, uh, certain ones like Jackie Pargo, uh, you know, this guy was a, a good wrestler, a good technician, and he'd rather go out and dance around the ring. Then to get out there and take a bunch of bumps in the ring and do all this, you know, 
And he once told me, he said, kid, I don't have to go out there and fall all over the place. And he didn't. He just danced around the ring or whatever. And if he needed to fall all over the place, he could do that. But like he told me, why do it if you don't have to? And uh, I guess a lawler followed his, uh, his tracks, you know, don't do it unless you have to. And be sure you can do it when you try to do it. You know, I had a lot of wrestlers, man, that tough guys. And, and, you know, I never had a problem with any of Bruiser Brody, one of the toughest guys ever in the business, man. Everybody dreaded working with Bruiser Brody. And Bruiser Brody was one of the best people to work with that I ever got in the ring with. He beat the hell out of you, but it was still, you know, <laughs> you come out, you look like you've been in a dog fight, bruises and red all over. But, I mean, you know, he didn't mind how hard you want to eat, do whatever you want to do. He'd fight with you, you know, and the people loved it, and that's what you're out there to do. You're out there to give the people satisfaction for paying their hard-earned money and then join a show. And you're also, the way I was taught, Herb Welch told me, don't hang around outside the door signing autographs for all these little girls and this stuff I get like all the guys do. I would go in the building, and when I got through, I would leave the building majority of the time. I stayed at different hotels from guys. I wouldn't stay where all the guys stayed at the hotel unless there was only a hotel around. But, uh, you know, I kind of stayed on my own, stayed away from all that. And people, when I come to the matches, they thought it was a, a, a privilege for them to see me or even speak to me would be even more of a privilege. And, you know, they didn't get tired of seeing me. They always wanted to see me. Because all they seen me come from the dressing room to the ring, from the ring back to the dressing room, I was out the back door and gone. And, you know, some of these guys hang around, hang around, hang around. But that's what you learn when you get in places where you're just coming in and all these guys see you and they see your potential, that you're going to be somebody one day. You're going to be one of the greatest wrestlers ever been out there. And they don't want you to be that because when you get that good, you're taking their job. And they don't want you to take their job, especially Lawler. Lawler didn't want nobody to be better than him. And, you know, since he owned the territory, a part of the territory, he could arrange it like that, you know, where he won all the time. He never had to lay down for anybody because he was the boss. He's the one calling the shots. But I guess he handled it pretty good. He's still going. I thought he was dead until somebody told me the other day he lived, uh, you know, and uh, I thought he died. Didn't he die one time? I, I think some people just the many lives you almost perceive them to be gone you hear so many rumors through the years and uh yeah I, I don't know about quite about the Lawler rumor but I want to kind of fast forward a little bit because you we went into Memphis but you also worked uh you know for a different generation of Welch uh, you worked with uh, alongside Ron Fuller in the, the Gulf Coast where you also tagged up with Dennis Condry and another guy that uh, doesn't get quite mentioned enough when we talk about the history of the pro wrestling business uh Bill Ash let's talk a little bit about uh, moving to Florida and how this eventually got you to cross paths with a then Sterling Golden. So this story kind of takes another uh, another wave, if you know what I mean. Uh, your time in the Gulf Coast and the uh, Florida and Alabama areas. Well, first thing, Ron Fuller was a, a great guy. I thought he always treated me good and fair. And his brother Robert Fuller, you know, they was always good guys. Me and Robert, I like to beat up on Robert a lot, you know. But Ron was six nine, I think. So. Uh, and he would uh, swing them down eight feet arms and hit you upside the head and, and wrap around and hit you on. He'd get two licks on you, one on the right side, and his arm go around and hit you on the other side. So, But, no, he was a good guy. He, he he run a good business, and, of course, like all promoters, he took care of himself and uh, didn't pay like he should have, but he paid along with everybody else. They all knew what they were doing, you know, at that time. Uh, Bill Ash was a great, great partner. Bill Ash and me, we did, we was a great tag team. But the only thing, Bill Ash was so serious about his wrestling. You know, he wanted everything perfected, uh, you know, but he could wrestle and he could uh, actually work and shoot a little bit. And he was a tough kid, but he was a, he was more of a, perfectionist than I was. I like to uh, joke around and trip people and do whatever I had to do to, you know, get people going. But me and Bill had a good run. 
and then Dennis Condon and me, we we kind of worked together for uh, all time down here in Tennessee and Knoxville and uh, Florida, and uh, you know we had a great time together. That's when Phil and Phil Higgerson and Dennis Condry was tag team partners here for about I don't know three or four years. It seemed like forever, and then Phil finally quit the wrestling business, became a radio broadcaster here in Jackson, Tennessee, and just retired, I think, a couple of years ago for 20 years or something in the radio. And he just, uh, you know, both of them, nice guys, and Dennis was very good, uh, you know, very good performer. He knew how to get the people upset and the heat. And if you got heat, you made money. If you didn't get heat, you didn't make no money. So if you ain't making no money, you ain't going to be around long. So we made good money. Made, uh, everything was good. And then we was in Florida, and Terry uh, Hulk Hogan came in, Panama City one night, and, uh, you know, all steroid up. And I said, my God, this guy about the bus with steroids and everything. And uh, we met there, and we become good friends. He would come down, and he had no money to get a hotel room. So he stayed with me and my wife and my daughter, and uh, we kept him up, and I'd give him a ride here and there. He didn't have any money, just starting. And then, like I said, we became best of friends, and uh, we worked good together. We drew money everywhere we went together. But uh, there at the last, Hogan was telling Vince that I was going to beat him in a, a live match at one of these big arenas, Madison Square Gardens, uh, Winnipeg, Canada, uh, Houston, somewhere, I was going to beat him because he said he's always hooking me in the ring. And then he lets me go, and I don't like that. And I call him a crybaby, and we used to, uh, you know, I said, boy, learn how to fight for yourself, you know. And, uh, and then Vince, I guess, really got upset and wanted to get rid of him. That's one of the reasons, too, he wanted to get rid of him, because Hogan got very, very scared of me. And uh, I told him, well, why are you scared of me? Oh, scared of you. Yeah, well, uh, Linda always told me he was afraid I was going to beat him in the middle of the ring. That was his ex-wife. <laughs> yep. I said, God, Linda, tell the big dummy to smarten up. And, uh, you know, like I said, we was, we was good. We drew money everywhere we went. And Minneapolis, uh, WWE, uh, Florida, even before he came, Hulk Hogan, we drew good money. You know, you know, and, uh, David. But, uh, for for time constraints, I, I want to talk a little bit about this Hogan connection because I want to connect it to uh, our listening base here up in northwestern Minnesota. Uh, maybe from for another time, we could get together and talk a little bit about your Calgary runs and your Portland run. But what I want to talk about, as we have the time today, is the American Wrestling Association and the Hulk Hogan connection. Because boy, when you guys got together here, you tore the territory up. Let's bring us in how you got called to action here in 19, it was around summer 1983. Now I could be off by a little here, but take us into the story about how you ended up in the AWA with your good old friend Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea, and working with Vern Gagne. Well, uh, Hogan evidently talked to Vern and said, bring this guy in. He's a good guy, good heel, one of the best in the business. I can make money with him. So I got uh, with Byrne and they brought me in and I worked my way up. Me and Hogan started having matches in all the big towns and most of them was knocked down drag outs, uh, bleeding all over the place and uh, me really cutting him down on interviews. I mean, uh, getting him so mad, he said, please stop talking about my big head. I said, well, you got a big head. Why, why, can't, why can't I talk about it? Well, it's not good. I figured the more I'd push him, the more he would get mad at the interview and do a little better, you know. But we had some rough, tough matches. We we worked out together for years in the gym. And then we was on top everywhere, all over for Minnesota, all over all the big towns that Bernie Gagne ran. Hogan told me, Vince got a hold of him and told him he wanted him to come to New York and he had a good place for him, going to make him world champion, all this, all this. Hogan told me, but he told nobody else. So a couple of weeks later, Hogan left in the dark of the night with Barangana. And then he shows up on TV. But before that, see, I'm making interviews about Hogan in all these towns 
Salt Lake City, uh, Denver, Winnipeg, that we worked main event all in months to build up to a final climax of me and Hogan. It's like a death match almost. And I was making interviews about Hogan and saying, oh, hey, if you show up in Houston, Texas, if you show up in Denver, Colorado, I'm going to beat you and I'm going to shave your head and I'm going to pull your tights off you and let your naked body lay out there and I'm going to burn them and you ain't going to never be able to show your face again. And if I don't do that, I'll burn my tights, shave my head, and quit lashing for the rest of my life. Vern Gagne came out and said, oh my God, David, what are you doing? Well, I'm just making a strong interview here this year and be with you. Vern said, oh my God, yeah, yeah. So the next week, Hogan didn't show up. Oh, that, that put fuel on the fire. I go back for same town. I said, I told you he wouldn't show up. I told you this year. I told you the guy's a coward. He's no longer, you know, a professional wrestler. I heard he just took off, went to another country or whatever. You can forget about Hogan. And then Burns goes out and says, oh, oh, no, I heard Hogan went. Uh, he moved to another area, another territory. We got somebody you can take on, you know. So we went on for about a month like that three or four weeks, and I got a call from Vince that said, David, quit today. Uh, okay. It was interview day, interview day in Minnesota. I walked into TV, and I told Vern Gagne, uh, Vern, I've got to quit, buddy. And he said, quit? Why are you? I said, bye, bye, bye. He got mad, and understandable why. And he said, well, get out of the TV station. Get out of here. Just don't come back. I said, well, wait a minute, Vern. You're not as uh, young as you used to be. And I don't think you can throw me out of this TV station. And thank God he didn't try to throw me out because he could have thrown me out and probably beat the hell out of me on the way. Uh, I'm glad he didn't. Fern <laughs> was a tough guy, you know. And anyway, that's that's the way I left Fern. And Fern was very good to me. Uh, you know, if he just let it go when I told him I was leaving, I would have walked out and that'd been it. But no, he had to. Tell me, order me out and all this, and I had to say that. And, uh, of course, Mighty Greg jumped up and said, well, I'll throw you out. <laughs> oh, my God. Why don't y'all grab that guy before I have to hurt him real bad? <laughs> but, I mean, you know, can you imagine Greg Gagne standing up and uh, like George Doolis standing up? telling me i'm gonna hurt you oh yeah sure you are yeah yeah and you're, and, and you're quite familiar with uh with george Goulas as well when you were first coming up in memphis so you definitely know that uh that whole father-son dynamic where it could be a little uh yeah father a little bit more than what the dad uh, the son has i i remember them times he'd come to me i'm gonna tell my daddy if you don't do this move i said well there he is you go tell him i'm gonna kick your ass in the damn ring boy and Nick come on and said, Well, why are you picking on my boy like that? You better get out there and do what my boy wants. Oh, I will, Nick. I'll kick his ass if he don't straighten up. And oh Nick Nick kinda loved it, but he still wanted to take up for his baby, you know. Well, yeah, yeah, it's, it's family and stuff. But I want to talk a little bit more. Uh, the AWA, we want to talk about promo day was where you, you gave Vince, or Vince, but Vern the news that uh, that you weren't going to be around. But I want to talk about some of these interviews through the years that you cut with the AWA uh, with Gene Okerlund. And there's been some clips online that have surfaced through the years where uh, you have cracked Gene up. I mean, you are just doing your thing, cutting the promo, the Dr. D promo that everybody wants to hear. But there are some uh, interviews I've seen that you you just caught Gene off guard. How fun was that to work on? You know what can be sometimes an arduous day of getting promos done for various markets, especially uh, in the AWA that had so many different ones uh, for it. Pretty pretty strong for a territory. Then talk about those uh, promo days with Gene. Well, you know, Gene was great, and he was, he was a great mic man, and he could uh, <clears throat> he could get himself into the interview himself. Like you know, I'd be talking to him and telling. Yeah, I know you love Hogan. I know you and Hogan got a love affair, and I know your father and son probably if the truth was known. And he said, oh, I don't think that's so. But uh, what do you mean you don't think it's so? You think I'm lying to you, Gene? He said, no, well, I don't know if you're lying. You just uh, got wrong information. Don't tell me I'm lying. Yeah, I mean, he would feed you right back. He just, you know, and he'd never get excited about it. It's just kind of like, oh, yeah, this guy is a nut, <laughs> you know, or something. But uh, the people loved him too, and he'd feed you back. And it's good to do interviews with people like that. I've done interviews with people that would get scared when I talked to them, and they would they freeze up. They're like, 
Uh, what's wrong with you, boy? Huh? You lose your voice? Uh, 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 <laughs> <laughs> they would, uh, you know, people, uh, Gene just fall right in there with you. He could stay with you at any time with the interview. And he, he was a pretty smart fellow for his echoes. You know, he like Lance Russell was a good one. Uh, Ed Whalen out of Canada was great. You know, he just let you go and ran on and ran on. And then he just say two or three words that just kind of kept you going, you know, and I don't know. It's an art to be able to, uh, do interviews like that. But you know, like I said, you better be able to back them up because there's a lot of people out there don't like to hear that. And they want to try you. I don't go to bars. I don't drink. I've never had a beer in my life. And, you know, I, when I was young, getting out of the army, I'd go in a bar or something and I'd order a glass of water. It looked like I'm drinking over there, you know, some kind of vodka, something. It'd be water, you know. But everybody wants to fight. Everybody sees you. Oh, yeah, there you are. I'm, uh, you know, you get in trouble. Or for me, anyway. So I stayed out of bars and, uh, you know, and I just, you know, interviews came natural to me. I had no problem with interviews at all, you know, and, I, you know, I did good interviews. I mean, for Knoxville, for, everybody told me that. I'm not blowing my own horn. I know I was good, but I didn't want to tell everybody that, you know, but, you know, <laughs> but you got to be able to stay on track. And you got to be able, my trouble was I used to make the people so mad, like Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas. They'd get so mad, Tony Atlas gets so mad, he starts mumbling. You can't even understand him. And Rocky Johnson was okay, you know, he, he, he would just go along with the program, no problem. But, you know, Tony Atlas would get mad, you know, I would tell him, hey, I'm going to tie you up out here and beat you like I did your daddy. Uh, my daddy used to tell me how they used to beat your daddy with a wheel and made him pick the cotton, made him do the oh, Tony Atlas would come unglued. Uh, and, you know, we get back in the dressing room later on and Tony say, why you got to talk about my family? Like, Tony, I don't even know your family. <laughs> I don't know anybody in your family. Well, why you got to talk like that? What did I say? He said, you told everybody you beat my father up with a wheel. Oh, no, I didn't say that, Tony. Go back and listen to it. And then finally, I'd end up telling him to go jump in the lake or whatever, you know. I mean, Tony's a good boy. Didn't have no problem with him, just a little understanding, misunderstanding once in a while. You know, uh, I, I want to talk about another opponent. Uh, pardon me. Uh, uh, you uh, worked with Hogan in these handicap matches in the AWA, from what I can recollect. Uh, I want to talk about Mr. Saito. And sometimes there's another guy that uh, has a lot of respect from the boys of the time. But, I mean, when history goes on, he doesn't quite get his. He only gets maybe a minor footnote uh, due to the unfortunate incident with Patera here in the States, uh, in Wisconsin. But you had a chance to work with uh, Masa Saito uh, with uh, Hogan in those handicap matches uh, up and down the AWA territory for a, for a spell. I want to talk about, I'll have you talk about Mr. Saito and what you can remember, uh, you know, working with him and, and some of the stuff that, you know, in and out uh, of, of the ring uh, at that time, the AWA, because that was another guy that helped to really set that place on fire with, with that feud. Yes. Saito was a great guy, man. He was, uh, he was very tough, very knowledgeable. And, uh, he was a Japanese wrestler, I mean, he was, he come up through the ranks hard way to get where he was. And, you know, very nice guy. And he used to come to my house, eat dinner with me. And, uh, you know, we enjoyed having him all the time and, uh, nice guy. And, uh, Hogan, we go out with Hogan. And, uh, of course, it, it made Hogan have a super easy night with Saito and me both in there. Uh, you know, he knew that we, we was going to make the match so easy for him that, People thought he was hurting us, but we were doing everything for him, get him over. And, uh, but Saito was a very good guy, very tough guy. <clears throat> I guess Ken Patera and a few of the police, uh, the police department that tried to keep them from that Big Mac, uh, you know, found out that they're hungry, feed them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, closing it down right before, you know, just a few minutes, it was, those guys were barely uh, missing the cutoff time. I think I would have just opened the door and said, hey, uh, you got some uh, hungry, big gentlemen, considering when you look at both Patera, who was a power lifter, and Saido, who wasn't exactly uh, skin and bones Jones, I think I would have probably acquiesced and maybe opened it up for a couple of minutes just for those guys. And, you know, those guys, uh, uh, 
Patera and Saito, if you just label guys, these two guys, two of the best guys in the business. I mean, they were both great, you know, and uh, both of them in fantastic shape. And I guess they just got hungry and they wanted a cheeseburger or something. I don't know. I just can't understand that, you know. But it happened, and, uh, you know, it cost Saito his uh, United States. Uh, he couldn't come back here a couple years in jail, and uh, I'm sure he didn't like that. Nobody like that, I don't guess. But, you know, there's a lot of them that, uh, a lot of bad boys went through wrestling that, you know, uh, they they didn't get the recognition they deserved. Um, they always got their top guy like Hogan, Flair. Uh, you know these guys. Uh, they're you know they're good workers and good guys. Now, I'm not saying they didn't deserve the the break, but other guys deserve breaks too. But the promoters did not want other guys. They wanted people they could control. And, you know, one time a guy told me, he said, listen, you'll never find all the wrestlers, all the bad guys that will get along. The promoter don't want them to get along because if they get along, they can walk out and shut your territory down. But if you keep them at odds with each other and keep dissension amongst the boys, you always got enough to keep running, you know. And um, I guess that's true, but uh, I just didn't believe all that stuff, you know, like in Canada, you know, Calgary was Stu Hart and Bret Hart and these guys, man, that was the best time I ever had. I was up there three years. I loved that area. That territory was great, man. And, uh, everybody else, a lot of people go, Oh, I didn't like that. I didn't like to do all the miles. I didn't like the weather in this year, but, uh, Hey, we had a good time for three years there. And I worked with some fantastic people up there and, you know, but all over I had good guys to work with. I don't think I ever been in a territory where there wasn't. <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I don't think I've ever been in a territory where there wasn't good guys to work with. Uh, there was some that was a little ignorant or something, but you would straighten them out real quick. Uh, but most of them are very intelligent, hardworking, and they have to be to be a pro wrestler and working for a big organization. Uh, you know, you just didn't get in those organizations if you couldn't take care of yourself, couldn't work, couldn't entertain people. That's what the people paying the big bucks for. You know, today, I mean, I don't know what they charge at the match. I haven't been in a match in no telling when. But I imagine a family of four, you better be ready to pay a couple hundred dollars to go to one of these big matches. And, I mean, or more. You know, how does that feel if you've taken your kids and wife, two kids and a wife to a match, and you go in there and say, boy, that sucked. Or when you get through, they're talking to each other. Yeah, we're coming next week. We're going to see David Schultz get his ass whooped. Yeah, they're going to whoop his ass. He ain't going to go out of time. You know, <laughs> you're entertaining them, and they're going to come back. And I thought that's what it's all about, man, making people love to come see you but hate to come see you. Absolutely. And they hate me. They hate me and they like me. Absolutely. The David. Line, they knew they were going to get entertained if they come to see me, no matter who I was working in the ring with. Well, it looks like, uh, David, uh, we've reached uh, the time limit here, uh, nearing the time limit for uh, our get-together this week. We definitely would love to have you back on Wrestling Memory sometime in the month of March because uh, we uh, I think we've only merely scratched the surface uh, with this. And uh, before uh, we, we say our goodbyes, David, I want to bring back in Mike McCurdy uh, to wrap up this edition. And like I tell you, the uh, the invite is there if you want to come back and on in March. But, Mike, let's uh, wrap. you got anything to help us wrap up here uh, for this uh, edition? I think this is going to be a solid part one. Um, I've enjoyed listening to this interview. Um, David, thank you for joining us, man. I mean, amazing. And to hear the stories and all that, to get behind the, you know, the guy that I watched on TV growing up has been great, but I'm with Glenn. We'd love to have you back a, uh, for a part two. Cause as you said, we didn't, we haven't scratched the surface. There's a few more questions that I've got for you too. So. Hey, I've been, it's been a pleasure being with you. And uh, I'm uh, I was down that way here a while back looking for that broken skull ranch. What's his name? Steve Austin. He's the one that do that broken skull yes, ranch sir. thing on TV. Yes, he does. That would be Steve Austin. Does the broken skulls challenge? Yes. 
Yeah, I was trying to get with him, but, uh, you know, some people just can't be got. You know, you you got to keep looking for him and all that. But just give me a call, set it up, and I'll get back with you. Because right now I'm gathering up a lot of information for book number two. Yes, that sounds awesome, man. I can't <laughs> wait to read that. Book one is fantastic already, man. Uh, I can't wait Great. to check out book number two. Did you, enjoy, did you enjoy reading the book? Oh, I thought it was excellent. I've, I, it was, I can put, I've enjoyed what I've read so far. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, even though, uh, I mean, a lot of people have told me, oh, my God, that's the best wrestling book. And Bounty Hunt was outstanding, I think, because people don't really understand Bounty Hunt until I started describing and all this. And we, you know, we try, uh, you know, it's a lot of stories out there. And John picked out about five or six of them, eight of them, ten of them, whatever. And he's, I said, well, some of these you don't want to talk about. And, you know, we tried to make it easy as possible on people where they understand what's going on. And again, it's been a pleasure being there. Let me know when you get ready again. And if I'm not in the African jungle down there looking for bears or elephants or something, I'd be glad to be there with you. This has been Wrestling Memories.